A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Pros. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Chapter 5. The Dementor. Tom woke Harry the next morning with his usual toothless grin and a cup of tea. Harry got dressed and was just persuading a disgruntled Hedwig to get back into her cage when Ron banged his way into the room, pulling a sweatshirt over his head and looking irritable. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa's old hand. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You all should definitely join us on Patreon this week because my every flavored bean conversation is essential. It is going to be trying to suss out Wizard's relationship to muggle clothing because Ron is clearly comfortable in a sweatshirt. I feel like every every flavor bean conversation is essential. I mean, this is... That's it's, true. It's, it's just a characteristic of the form, not of this particular episode. Okay. Well, everybody join <laughs> our Patreon. This is the kind of banter you get on, <laughs> on every flavor bean. Well, everyone, join us on Patreon. You get ad-free episodes, you get bloopers, you get all sorts of added bonuses, including today. I'm going to force Matt to have a conversation with me about reconciling wizard relationships to muggle clothes, because I find it very confusing. To join, go to patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. That's patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. Vanessa, this week we are reading Chapter 5, The Dementor, through the theme of redemption. Tell us a story about redemption. Please. Yes. So when I was in the second grade, I got strep throat eight times. I like permanently had strep throat. It was awful. And then I didn't get it for years and years and years. 
And then one day I was sitting in my ninth grade biology class and I felt fine and I swallowed and I felt fine. And then I swallowed again and I instantaneously knew I had strep throat. You know that feeling where you're like, oh, here it is. Like, I just, I knew. And so I went to the office and I said, I think I have strep throat. They took my temperature. I had a fever. Called my mom to pick me up. Go to the doctor for a rapid strep throat test. And then we go back to my mom's office and she's getting work done while we're waiting to find out what's wrong with me. And I'm hanging out out front in the office with the receptionist. And this man who works in the office, he was hanging out, quote unquote, teasing me, giving me a hard time about how I look way too healthy to be sick and that I was just ditching school. While he's standing there, the receptionist gets the call from my doctor's office and, you know, gets transferred to my mom's four cell phones, everyone. And they say, yes, she has strep throat. We're calling in a prescription for amoxicillin. Like she should stay home from school for two days, whatever. And I felt so redeemed by the fact that I had strep throat. And I looked at him and I was like, ha, I told you. And he said, what are you glad that you're sick? And I said, first of all, I'm glad that I got a diagnosis because I'll stop being in pain because there's medication. And secondly, I am redeemed. You were accusing me of being a faker and I'm not a faker. There was a scientific test that proves that I'm not a faker. And that is my story about redemption. <laughs> I love it. I love the story about redemption. I'm always fascinated by the level of confrontation that you had with adults as a child. <laughs> and like, the, I love it. I wasn't confrontational. I sat there and took it. And then I was like, no, See, I know. I do have it. To be clear, I'm not saying you were causing the confrontation. <laughs> okay. I'm saying you were once again drawn into a fight you did not choose. <laughs> Men didn't like me because I was a confident little girl. I know. I, it's great. It's great. I'm glad that you were vindicated, redeemed. redeemed. Thank you. I was redeemed. So, Vanessa, it seems like in that story, the idea of redemption is is really close to vindication, right? Yeah. But is there a distance between the two? I mean, it's a great story, and I think it tells us something about redemption, but tell me why it came up for you. Because I—and this is a question that I have again and again, right? The difference between redemption and revenge and redemption and vindication— Because I felt like in that moment, I was vindicated. But the other thing that made me feel good is I felt as though I must be redeemed in his eyes, right? And so it was about me projecting that onto him of like, you thought I was a liar and a faker. And now regardless of what like grandstanding you're going to do and continuing to harass me, like your perception of me as a liar, I have been redeemed in that. Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, I think that's that's really helpful, Vanessa, because I think, I mean, there is this close link between redemption and vindication, but I think that w- a reason why this story should count as redemption in addition to and not only as vindication is, well, to explain it, we have to take a short trip to Etymology Corner. <laughs> I Vanessa. love it there. So the, the word redemption actually means to buy back something mm. out of the Latin, right? And was almost exclusively used even from its beginning in a metaphorical sense to think about like buying back or redeeming someone who has done something wrong, right? Like if you've done something Mm -hmm. wrong, you owe something to somebody. And once you've paid what you owe, then you're kind of brought back, bought back into proper relation, right? To vindicate Mm -hmm. it just means to be proven right. But what's interesting about the story you're talking about is that this guy believed you were wrong and there was a moral 
problem with you. Like he was implying that you were lying also, right? That you were faking it. And so it wasn't just like, who's right? Whoever's right will be vindicated. It's not only are you not right, this guy was saying, there's a fault in you because you're trying to pull one over on your mom or on the doctor or whatever, right? And so the vindication was redemptive because you were bought back. The price that you had to pay to be vindicated was this positive strep test and you paid it. Yep. And he has never paid his redemption. He remains unredeemed in your eyes. He remains unredeemed. Matt, 30 second recap time. Are you ready? No. On your mark. Get set. Go. So Harry wakes up and it's time to leave and they uh, are taking special cars from the ministry and everyone's a little bit nervous. Not everyone. Arthur is a little bit nervous, but they get in the cars and they go and they go to King's Cross and they, when they get to King's Cross, they're looking around and it's a little bit nervous and they lean against the, the barrier and they're on the train and then they're going to the train and they're sitting with a professor for some reason. And then everything turns dark and a dementor comes to the door and Harry passes out and everyone freaks out. And then they get into Hogwarts and McGonagall's like, come to my office. And the Harry, you fainted, tabs some chocolate. Oh, and, and Hermione, let me talk. And Harry goes to sleep. I really hoped that you were going to tell us how every single person got through the barrier. Arthur and Harry <laughs> leaned. Fred and George took it in a run. I think that's important because they're trying to look nonchalant because he's looking at the yeah, other yeah, trains yeah. coming in. He's like, oh, we're not totally. wizards. We're just standing here on this, <laughs> leaning against this barrier. Okay. Vanessa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for your 30-second recap? To hit I all am. the points, because we are a team, to hit all the points that I missed. Yep. I'll do my best. Okay. Three, two. One, go. So Arthur's like, Harry, can I pull you aside for a second? Sirius Black is trying to kill you. Harry's like, I know. And you don't even have to break your promise of fudge because I overheard you. And and Arthur is like, don't go looking for Sirius. And Harry is like, why would I do that? I would never, ever do that. And then the Dementor makes him faint. And Draco's giving him a hard time about it. And the big thing that they find out at the feast is that Hagrid is now going to be a teacher. He's going to be the professor of magical care of creatures. And I'm very excited. Care of magical creatures. That's what it's called. I love it. You did a great. You hit all the things, all the, all the most important things. I hit all the least important details. And you hit all <laughs> the most important, like, structural plot points. Go team. <laughs> So Vanessa, here's what I was thinking as I read this chapter with an eye toward redemption. Mm. I found myself struggling to see redemption at the line level, thinking about like individual moments in this chapter where redemption was something that came to mind or that the situations in the chapter were kind of helping to illuminate or explain for me. But then after I finished reading and as I reflected on the chapter, I started thinking about maybe in this novel, but certainly in the series as a whole, how much redemption really is at stake for so many of these characters. Right. Like if we're thinking just about this chapter and there's only a hint of this, it's not in the chapter, but we have to think about this chapter within the context of the larger plot of the novel. I mean, Sirius was wrongly accused. Right. Yeah. There's also Hagrid being given permission to to teach, even though he's not a fully qualified wizard or whatever. They're trying to make something right. Right. But then even like things like Lupin, his relationship to Snape is complicated. The fact that Lupin's a werewolf, this is also something that needs to be redeemed somehow in his relationships with others. There's scabbers. There's so many people who have past mistakes or past misdeeds or past errors or whatever, even false accusations that that are in search of redemption. And it seems like a lot of this book and a lot of the series is going to be them trying to figure out how to arrive at it. Even Snape with 
you know, with Lily, right? Like yeah. so much of what the reason he is in the situation he's in is because he's trying to redeem some issues there. So, I mean, this is not the way we typically begin our conversations at this broad kind of series level, but it seems like before we narrow down into the details of the chapter, I know it seemed to make sense to just name some of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And what's so interesting is the way that people feel as though they need to be redeemed for ways that they are structurally excluded. Like to some extent, I know that there are theories that Hermione is such an overachiever because she's a muggle born, right? Yeah. In a wizarding world. And that is about trying to redeem yourself, trying to pay a debt for being born who you are, right? Yeah. And I feel like that is a kind of mental calculus that a lot of us do. Yeah, that's a really important distinction. There's a important line that's crossed when you are thinking about how a person redeems an action versus how a person like redeems their very self, like their their right. being, right? Like if what's wrong with you is something you did, then you can make reparation or undo what you did, that kind of thing, right? But if what's wrong with you is who you are, right? As yeah. is the case in things like, you know, homophobia, transphobia, racism, anti-Semitism, right? If what's wrong with you is who you are, then how can you redeem that? Like if you are who you are, that's that's an impossible situation. And it's a situation... Gosh, you're right. I mean, it's not just these individual characters I just named. This is the tension in the book, right? There is this wizarding supremacy, which names a certain whole class of people as basically irredeemable because of who they are. Right. And 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 the children in this book who eventually resist that movement, along with some adults, that actually is the narrative that they're trying to fight back against, not to actually redeem anybody, but to to assert that these folks don't need redemption in the first place because there's nothing wrong with with who they are. Yeah, redemption seems to me like a place where it's worth an attempt at deprogramming ourselves mm. because Hagrid is the great example of that to me, right? Hagrid presents in this chapter as if he has been redeemed, right? He can now teach great man Dumbledore. Thanks to the three of you for proving that I'm innocent. But really, it's the wizarding world that needs to be redeemed, right? They are the ones who owe a debt to Hagrid. Yep. They are the ones who made this mistake. They are the ones who need to pay reparations. What Hagrid has is some level of vindication. And I would argue that he, in a way, has complete vindication because they are not trying to institute him as a fully qualified wizard. They're not trying to make up for all of his loss of wages for whatever, 40 years of being disqualified. Like, none of that. There isn't an article in the paper, front page, being like, we were wrong. Ruby is Hagrid. Wonderful. He isn't walking around feeling vindicated. He's walking around feeling redeemed. And it breaks my heart. I'm like, no, you're not the one who needs it. Yeah. And so it feels like other people's projection can actually really start to mess with us, right? If my strep test had come back negative, it still wouldn't have been that I was a liar, right? Like I legitimately didn't feel well. I did have a fever, right? Like, this man is the one who is being a jerk. Like, I was a kid who thought they were sick. And so, uh, yeah, it's just really interesting to me the way that the sort of criminal, for lack of a better word, in a situation can somehow project this idea that the victim is actually the one that needs the redemption. Yeah, because if the thing that—yeah, I think that's right. And it, it it raises some questions about the way we tend to think about offense and punishment and atonement or all these things, right? The way that we displace responsibility for repairing relationship away from power in so many situations, 
But when what one wants is restored relationship, like with Hagrid, if he wants that, the only way he gets it is to bear that burden of proof, even though he was not the the cause of the fragmented relationship, even though he was a victim in this situation. That's right. Yeah. Ugh, it's infuriating. And Harry has that feeling too, right? He feels like he needs to be redeemed for fainting, right? And the first step in his attempt at redemption is understanding what happened, right? He's like, wait, none of you fainted? None of you heard the scream? And I wonder if he wouldn't feel that need for redemption if it wasn't for Draco and wasn't for this like idea of toxic masculinity that like, oh, I can't be the guy who faints. And this idea that he's always the special one, that he's like, I don't want to be different from everybody else again. Like if Ernie McMillan fainted, I'm not sure he would be like as mortified or as in need of this sense of redemption. Like, no, 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 I'm a tough guy as Harry would be or even Ron or Neville, right, who get bullied by Draco and Snape in these ways. I mean, I think that maybe I think there also might be something else going on, right, with Harry. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm reading this wrong, but, but you know, Harry's a Gryffindor and fearlessness is one of the attributes of being a Gryffindor, right? And I feel like he says several times in this chapter, like in a different context, he's like, I'm not scared. I'm not scared of Sirius Black. And he actually gives evidence. He's like, I faced Voldemort twice. Why should I be scared of Sirius Black, right? He shows this like, and maybe it's a performance of masculinity, but I, I actually think he isn't no, super I scared. Him. Yeah, I think he's not scared. And I think yeah. he does feel like he's been through this stuff. So I think part of it is him confused about what's going on with him. Like, why do the Dementors have this power over him that the Dementors don't have over others? Even though he resists the attribution of special one, he knows he's the only person that's faced Voldemort what, three times now and and survived, right? Yeah. And so why does this particular creature have unique power over him? And that because of the way Gryffindors, their relationship to fearlessness and bravery, to have a sense of fear and uncertainty about why he's afraid, I think that's driving his anxiety, at least in part. Yeah, yeah. That's why the teasing works, because it's tapping into something that's actually there. Yeah, I think that that's... A really helpful point and also just shows how all of these things are part of an emotional ecosystem and how complicated, (laughs) how complicated we all are. I am wondering if you can help me figure out, I feel like we've articulated the difference between vindication and redemption, right? But what is the difference between redemption and revenge sometimes? Because the Dementors are sent out you know, in theory, because Sirius Black is so dangerous, and yet the Dementors are arguably just as, if not more dangerous than one potential killer. And what I can imagine being true is that the victims of the loved ones who died in the Sirius attack are like, he has to be caught at all costs. And so send out the Dementors. Or Fudge is like, this is a you know, disastrous PR move. And so there seems to be this desire not just to have Sirius get back into jail, but to torment him, take no prisoners in the meantime, right? Like, and take revenge on him with the Dementor's kiss. Yeah, I mean, this is, is, the people who would be redeemed in the case that you're describing, Vanessa, would be the ministry for having let him get out. Right. Right. You can see how the revenge might overlap with redemption in this case, not because 
Cyrus is being redeemed by his capture, but because the ministry is. And if what the ministry is trying to do is signal to the public that we are powerful, we are strong enough to handle handle Sirius Black, this notorious murderer, then a, a very gruesome punishment redeems the image of the ministry as powerful, right? Yeah. And so you can see how, how revenge might overlap. I mean, really interestingly, oh my gosh, a second visit to Etymology Corner in this episode, Vanessa. How lucky am I? Very interestingly, the the word revenge actually derives from the word vindicate. It means like revindicate. Mm-hmm. There is this idea of revenge as a vindication. Like if you have wronged me, I wrong you back. That vindicates me as one who should not be susceptible to your to your abuse. You can see some of that going on and like what I would see and I think Dumbledore and others see as the overreaction of the ministry or the overpolicing of Hogwarts, the willingness to put students at risk for the sake of capturing this criminal that they're afraid of, you know, the the public's perception of their failure to capture him. Maybe there's a better example of this, which is in Arthur telling Harry, do not go after Sirius. No matter what you hear, don't go after Sirius. And what Arthur is trying to do there is prevent a sense of revenge in Harry, right? He's saying to Harry, Harry doesn't know this, but he's saying you are going to find out what Sirius Black did and you are going to want revenge against him. And we know that Harry is owed vindication and a sense of redemption, right? Like this poor child, his parents were murdered because of Peter Pettigrew and obviously Voldemort. And then he was put into this horrible home. Like he does deserve all of this vindication. But Arthur is worried that rather than attempting to get some sense of redemption, he is going to go for revenge. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's right. But thinking in particular about the relationship of revenge to redemption, in the same way that like vindication is a particular form of redemption when like you want to be proven right about something or proven true about something, I think the particular situation that revenge redeems is when what you want to redeem is a perception of your own weakness or vulnerability. There's this philosopher named Jeffrey Murphy who has this book called Getting Even, which is a defense of revenge. And he he basically mounts his moral defense of revenge around this question of redemption, that when somebody hurts somebody else, what they have done is created the impression that the other person is is weaker and less valuable than the person who has been hurt. And the person who has been hurt by responding with vengeance shows that they also are strong, shows that they also are of equal worth and value and power, right? And so what has been redeemed by that act of vengeance is the assertion by the original abuser that the hurt person is is weak or vulnerable. And I think that this is what Fudge is up to when he wants Dementors everywhere and wants to suck the soul out of Sirius Black. It's not because he just wants to get Sirius Black safely contained with an ass command again. It's because he has been made to look weak. It's under his watch that Sirius Black escaped. And so he needs to correct the impression, among others, that he's weak or inept, and he can do that by really terribly punishing Sirius Black. And I think there's a sense also with Harry, right, in his desire for vengeance. It's also just, you know, what you might expect, the instinctual hatred towards someone who killed people you loved. But there is something about, you know, you did something to my family. You made them vulnerable to your power. Now you are going to be made vulnerable to mine. You can see that in him. So there is something 
yeah. there is something in the spirit of redemption about revenge if we understand what is being redeemed as a kind of vulnerability that revenge tries to refuse. Well, and right, like Fudge is trying to be redeemed in the projected eyes of his voters, mm-hmm. right? Whether or not his voters are actually sitting there judging him, he is projecting that onto him. They are more likely sitting there scared and are like, you know, please do something. I don't think I don't think most reasonable people actually think that the prime minister can control random prison breakouts, but he's attempting to be redeemed in the eyes of his voters. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. I have a, this is a topic that we have butted heads over, Vanessa. So we're going to re- we're going to return to it. It's Percy. Oh, I think and- I got flipped over to your side in this chapter. Oh, really? I think I got flipped over to your side in this chapter. Oh my god! Because here's no. here's what I'm thinking. So Percy, who I find very irritating in this chapter, when he sees Penelope at King's Cross, you just recognize right away that she's impressed by him. That she thinks he's great. Mm-hmm. And you see that everything that he doesn't get from his family, maybe he gets he gets from Molly. Let's be fair. Like, he's still a little bit For of a sure. jerk to his family because Molly gives him the credit he wants. But this exact thing he wants from his family that he gets so little of, especially from his siblings, he just gets in spades from Penelope. Like, she redeems him. 
Like she sees in him what he wants to see in himself and that the other people closest to him don't see. And that certainly must be part of his affection for her is that she sees who he wants to be and her affection for him, her love for him, redeems him, buys him back, get, restores him to the person that he wants to be. So I became a lot more sympathetic both to Percy and to kind of his relationship to Penelope in this scene. I really like this idea that someone who you love or who loves you can redeem yourself in your own eyes, right? That they can like build that confidence back up in you. Obviously, this gets problematic when you're a cult leader and other people are, <laughs> you know, reflecting I mean, maybe. you in your own eyes. <laughs> I just think that there's a line at which this becomes no longer helpful, right? Yes, when, of course. When leaders yep. surround themselves with, yes, people, right? Like, yeah. Trump had a lot of people who would redeem himself in his own eyes. That yep. is done in a dangerous way. Whereas I think in a in certain relationships and friendships, you know, in loving relationships, I think it can be done in a really productive and healthy way. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, it's, I think it's good of you to draw attention to how it can be problematic because I was thinking about it only positively. Like, you know, everybody has self-doubt and often the people that we trust most and that we feel most loved by are the ones who believe in us more than we believe in ourselves or or who yeah. don't have the kind of anxious doubts that we have in ourselves for no good reason other than that we're anxious doubtful people about ourselves and the other people right. around us who see us more clearly can tell us who we are and that can be really helpful but you're right there can be sycophantic kind of relationships where for access to power people will pretend they believe something about right a, a powerful person in order to have access to the power that person has and and that is really dangerous because then that those folks don't have people seeing them truly. They have people seeing them in a way that manipulates them. And yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But that's that's a great point. Matt, this is going to be our last sacred imagination for a little while, but you have a passage for us that is so good. It will be sticking the landing of sacred imagination. What passage do you have for us? I do have a passage, Vanessa. The passage I want to read is when we encounter as readers the Dementor for the first time and when Harry does too. There was a soft crackling noise and a shivering light filled the compartment. Professor Lupin appeared to be holding a handful of flames. They illuminated his tired gray face, but his eyes looked alert and wary. Stay where you are, he said, in the same hoarse voice, and he got slowly to his feet with his handful of fire held out in front of him. But the door slid slowly open before Lupin could reach it. Standing in the doorway, illuminated by the shivering flames in Lupin's hand, was a cloaked figure that towered to the ceiling. Its face was completely hidden beneath its hood. Harry's eyes darted downward, and what he saw made his stomach contract. There was a hand protruding from the cloak, and it was glistening, grayish, slimy-looking, and scabbed, like something dead that had decayed in water. But it was visible only for a split second. As though the creature beneath the cloak sensed Harry's gaze, the hand was suddenly withdrawn into the folds of its black cloak. And then the thing beneath the hood whatever it was, drew a long, slow, rattling breath, as though it were trying to suck something more than air from its surroundings. An intense cold swept over them all. Harry felt his own breath catch in his chest. The cold went deeper than his skin. It was inside his chest. It was inside his very heart. 
I love that line as if it was trying to breathe something more than air. I I find that line very evocative. Well, Matt, I was imagining that I'm looping and I am so tired that I have slept through trolley carts and conversations and like being banged around like he is he's asleep as the kids are boarding the train. So he's like slept through the parents saying goodbye thing and then waking up and having this like demonic creature in the room with you, how horrifying it would be. And simultaneously what it would feel like for Lupin. Lupin must have just like a slightly different relationship to Dementors than other creatures because as a werewolf, I would imagine that he has like more empathy for complicated creatures, right? Like the Dementors in their defense are hungry, right? And so it's interesting, you know, we find out later that he at first tries to convince them to go, right? He's like, Sirius Black isn't here. You can go. And only then does he send his Patronus. And I think, you know, it's possible that he doesn't want to chase them away if he doesn't have to. And that even though he woke up in the middle of this really stressful situation and just like repulsive, right? It's disgusting. It's like hearing about zombies, right? Yeah. That he still finds such compassion and coolness and calm. Yeah. I've just never noticed how Lupin, maybe because of his identity, is more compassionate with the Dementors, even though he's waking from like a deep, deep sleep into this sort of hellscape. That's interesting because I really, I read that differently. And maybe it is compassion. I think compassion is not the word I would use, but so maybe it is. But for me, I think that his cool and calm seems like the experience of a person who has routinely been afraid of being discovered, right? Who has been disciplined by systems around him to to stay cool and calm because being other than cool and calm is more risky. Does that make sense? <laughs> right? Yeah. And so he knows that dementors, you have to keep cool and you, right? And it, yeah, it just seems like... The way I read it was him knowing and having had enough encounters with this kind of thing to know the best way to deal with it will be to remain cool. But I think there is some level of understanding there. I think you're right. There is some level of understanding in the way he approaches them. That just seems especially impressive to me to be like woken from such a deep sleep. Yeah. That's right. Like usually in my life, I wake from a deep sleep where I'm having a bad dream and then I wake up and it turns out it's not true. But to wake up and see this kind of horrifying creature potentially attacking students and maybe you, that's just really, it's really scary. It is. I I see them as related as well because I feel like, you know, I, I don't know where in the lunar calendar it is when they're on September 1st, this particular year, but we know that one of the reasons he is so physically compromised is because he's a werewolf and because he's constantly managing this condition that he has. And so to me, they seem connected. His exhaustion is also part of him waking up into a world, which is one that he recognizes mm. because of where he is as a, as a werewolf. Yeah. Oh, so you're thinking he is so tired because he like just finished a werewolf time? Yeah, potentially, right? That, yeah. Well, this, he's always managing this, this, right? He's either yeah. taking the potion or whatever. Like, he's always managing it. And so, like, 
this, oh, there's a Dementor here. That's just my life, right? Like, this is another thing. You know what I mean? Like, there is, like, this level of... <laughs> totally. We see this throughout with Lupin. Like, there's this level of kind of spiritual exhaustion that, that like, lingers around him, I think, through the series from when we meet him until the last book. And I guess I read his column with the Dementors as just part of that. Oh, this is what we got? Okay, fine. This is what I got, right? Yeah, you know, one of the things I like to do, I, our listeners are probably getting used to this, is, is, I don't know what this says about me, but I always go to, tr- I try to smell what I can smell. Mm-hmm. And and I knew I was going to pick the Dementor passage. And so I expected to smell like a rotting smell because we know we have the image of the Dementor's hand that looks like a flesh that is decayed underwater. But I didn't get that at all. I got I got a very clean, like, antiseptic smell almost, right? Like, not like a cleaner, but... Oh, like formaldehyde? No, not strong like that. Like something about how, you know, like when you walk outside on a very cold winter's day, it's almost like the the chill takes the smell away from everything. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the stuff that would produce smell or ferment is just not working when it's that cold. And it was almost yeah. that. But but that has a feeling too when you walk out on a cold day and it's kind of crispy in your nose. Like, so it's not really a smell. It's almost the absence of smell. And when everything turned cold... That was sort of the sensation. It was just like this this chill that extended even to the the olfactory sense. And, <laughs> and I don't know what that says about dementors or their particular relationship to to wizards and 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 muggles and so forth. What happens in every other compartment? Like either either the dementors like look in and walk on, and this dementor is drawn into this compartment for some particular reason that we're lucky Lupin was there to kind of intervene in, or like in every other compartment, like. Are students getting hassled by Dementors and there's not a professor who happens to be sleeping there to kind of put a stop to it? Yeah. In a later chapter, Lupin is going to say, Harry, you had such a strong reaction because Dementors feed on fear and trauma and like you've seen yeah. more than anyone else. Yeah. I. It's interesting, though, because we find out later that like Luna has watched her mom die and Neville has also been traumatized. Well, right? Neville's like, in there, right? Yeah, Neville's in there too, uh, yeah, but I, it's not like, it, yeah, I mean, Neville, Ginny, and Harry are all in there. Yeah, right. So there is a lot of fear and trauma in this yeah. carriage. So maybe and it Lupin. is a disproportionate. <laughs> and Lupin, that's yeah. right. So, yeah, so I guess right. we could imagine that they're really drawn to this compartment in particular. But yeah, I would imagine, because Draco seems unfazed by it, yeah, right? right? He's like, whatever. I just got kind of like goosebumps a little bit. Like think of like the level of trauma in that room. Like you have this creature that can actually sense past trauma, sense these this woundedness to a different end. You you almost wish that humans had the capacity to sense it, not so we could suck people's souls out of them, right? But like in that room, traveling to Hogwarts at that moment, as you say, are Ginny, Neville, Harry, Lupin. That compartment's carrying a lot. Right. I mean, Hermione's been petrified. Oh, Ron yeah, Hermione, thought his yes, sister gosh, died. Right. right. Yeah, there's a ton of God that only room. knows what Crookshanks has survived. Yeah. There's a ton in that room. Yeah. Rescue in pet. that compartment, I should say. Yeah. Well, I mean, it also gets to the heart of this thing that I feel like these books teach us again and again and is absolutely true in the world, which is just that trauma begets more trauma. Right. Yeah. You would think that it's like enough bad things have happened. I'm done. But that just doesn't seem to be how the world works. Yeah. Yeah, there was something and and something a little slightly too neat and tidy, but also something about incarnating despair as a creature that lurks around 
and is naturally attracted to folks who have experienced trauma is like a really interesting way to think about what despair is, right? Not despair as like something that grows out of your trauma, but like despair is this creature out in the world that is attracted to people who have had this and preys upon. That's, yeah. that's a really interesting kind of personification of of despair. And it's also really interesting that it's the way that many of the earliest Christian monks who lived out in the desert in like Syria in like caves by themselves, that's the way they talk about things like despair and why they call despair why they call despair demons. Like because they don't feel like it is a thing that grows out of their past history. They think that it's something out in the world moving around that becomes attracted to you because you have that history and that you have to kind of engage. Yeah. But but the benefit of it though, I think, is that you get to think about despair as something outside yourself that is not part of who you are that you can fend off rather than something that's coming out of yourself, which makes your engagement with despair just internal rather than external. Right. There's been a lot of talk about how the Dementors are a useful metaphor for depression and that yeah. Lupin being a werewolf is a useful metaphor for AIDS. And I, fi- I find those arguments compelling and frustrating Mm-hmm. But this was the first time that I thought about the Dementors as predators, right? Yeah. The way that we know that certain people will try to seek out vulnerable children, right? Like they are they are yeah. these like active predators. Yeah. Matt, thank you for that great sacred imagination. And we will be back to our good old standby Lectio Divina next week. Great. Looking forward to it. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Hannah. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and the entire Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Hannah, and I'm just calling in with a thought I had while listening to your most recent episode and the discussion on Dumbledore's statement that no lasting damage was done. Uh, despite the petrified students like Hermione having months of their schooling year taken away from them in a way that's never really addressed again in the books. 
This made me think if maybe one of the reasons Hermione pushes herself so hard and stretches herself so thin over the prisoner of Azkaban is because of this lost time uh, and the fact that as a particularly academically driven student, she now feels behind her peers or like she missed out on certain events. Uh, This reminded me of kind of a situation I know a lot of us are in, especially here in Victoria, Australia, where I'm from. We've spent over 250 days in lockdown over the past two years, and it definitely feels like we've missed out on certain experiences and growth and rites of passage that we thought we'd be doing, uh, but haven't been able to. Uh, And a blessing to everyone who feels like they're making up for lost time over the past two years or maybe that they're a little bit behind where they thought they would be personally. I hope that we can all be patient and kind to ourselves as we make up for that time and not feel like we're rushing through anything. Thank you so much for the podcast. I simply adore it. Thanks, guys. Bye. Hannah, thank you so much for that wonderful voicemail. Yeah, we are absolutely all dealing with that, right? I didn't meet my niece until she was almost one year old, right? We've all had these moments I know that we have felt so acutely because of COVID and what things we want to think of as lasting damage and what we want to grieve for, what we want to resist and fight for, I think is something that we are going to be spending a lot of years processing. Yeah, thank you, Hannah, for this voice memo. I think what you described is exactly right. And I think I had never thought about that as something that would might be going on for Hermione, but it seems absolutely true to her character. But I think the other thing, maybe the lesson we learned from Hermione is that you can't do two times at the same time or three times at the same time. They actually can't redo that time or do it again. You just have to live into the time you have, right? Which is what makes it so hard and what Hermione learns and what all of us are trying to figure out now and do well. So thanks for this reading and for for what you're reading helps us see about ourselves and our, our situation right now. It's now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Kathy Freeman, who is 68, a loving grandma, a singer, and a photographer. Reverend Edie Lynn Charlton, mother, sister, friend, and mentor. Greg Dean, who is 57, a brother, an uncle, and a lover of rock and roll. Ruth Shaw, who is 90, a grandmother, a nature lover, and a steadfast friend. Somaya Ariel Kim, who is two and a half, precious determined, courageous, and beloved by many. And Bowen, who was 12 months and 18 days old, a brave boy who loved his stuffies. May all of their memories be a blessing to us all. Well, Matt, who would you like to offer a blessing to from the chapter? 
Vanessa, I would like to bless Ron this week. Because when they arrive at Hogwarts, you know, McGonagall meets the trio coming off the train and she pulls Harry and Hermione aside. And I just, I wonder what Ron is thinking when when they're pulled off. I mean, he gives them a look, right? But, you know, Ron knows that, everybody knows Hermione's the, the smartest wizard in the generation, probably. And everybody knows that Harry is this heroic wizard. And it's, you know, I just, Ron's a regular wizard kid, <laughs> right? And he's got these amazing friends and he's amazing too, right? But I mean, it must, I would imagine that there's, that he has self-doubt and he, and he wonders why McGonagall's not talking to him or what, why the Minister of Magic doesn't want to talk to him. Like it has to just be tricky <laughs> for Ron to navigate these friendships, especially in moments like this. And so it's just, he does a pretty good job overall, I think, through the series. And I just want to bless him. Mm, Ron. Well, I want to bless Hermione for two moments. I just love her so much. First of all, when the train goes dark and starts like stopping, little Gryffindor Hermione is like, I'm going to go talk to the train conductor and figure out what's going on. And I just love that she's so action oriented, that she's 13 and she's like, I'll get to the bottom of it. And the truth is, is that if it wasn't Dementors, she probably would have helped and gotten to the bottom of it. And then she has this other great moment where she's like, oh, we missed the sorting. And I just think it's so sweet that she wants to watch the sorting, that she like thinks it's this beautiful Hogwarts tradition and she wants to cheer for the new Gryffindors. Just like what an amazing young woman. Just, I just love her. That's all. I would like to bless Hermione for being so darn great. Next week, we will be reading chapter six, Talons and Tea Leaves Through the Theme of Joy. And Matt will tell us a story. Everybody, I just want to thank you all so much for everyone who contributed to our fundraiser for the Loveland Foundation. And even though our fundraiser is over, you can keep donating to the Loveland Foundation. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We were edited and produced by AJ Yaramaz. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week go to Hannah, Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Yori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turkile, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. And then one day I was sitting in ninth grade bio- biology. <laughs> and then one day I was sitting in ninth grade. Bi- oh my God. <laughs>